Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Weekside Podcast. I'm Jenny Rentis here with Connor Orr. We have another week of NFL action to discuss. Connor, this was a very dramatic week. A lot of exciting finishes, uh, thrilling games, certainly highlighted by Sunday night football between the Seahawks and Cardinals. But really all day long, there were a bunch of... uh, really fun matchups to watch and uh, exciting plays that we hadn't really seen in a long time. So so much so that I nearly got out of bed on Sunday when I heard that the Cardinals and the Seahawks had gone to overtime. But I, I you know, almost got out of bed. And then I ended up just waking up early and, and watching it before I knew what happened. But yeah, I mean, this was good. This is exactly what we were looking for. It seemed like the last few weeks were low in drama, but high in that sort of like palace intrigue sort of thing what's happening off the field who's going to get hired and fired and all that kind of stuff but this was like hey there's some great games here and that was really exciting i too watched the end of cardinal seahawks this morning i find that i enjoy a game better when i know the outcome i had woken up and seen it on twitter i feel like i can relax if you know what's going to happen you can look at each play more, maybe anticipate the ones that are coming to really home in on what's happening. Maybe that says something about me. I don't know. My mother always says she races ahead to the end of books and reads the ending. Now, I do not do that, but (laughs) I do find if I'm not like on the edge of my seat on every play, you know, I don't have any vested interest in what's going to happen, but I do find just the uncertainty, the anxiousness of these late game situations I get secondhand anxiety, which is one of many reasons why I was never an elite athlete. (laughs) Hey, that's not true. Still record holder uh, at in-state college for, uh, what, several different events, swimming events, right? I mean, we'll just gloss over the time that I threw up up behind the blocks at a (laughs) swim meet in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, because I was so nervous. So uh, clearly not my... uh, not my line of work for, as I said, a number of reasons. But Connor, why don't we dive right into the topics that you are back on topic duty this week. Our listeners will be very happy. So I will start with number one. Cool. The Dallas Cowboys were embarrassed at the hands of an inferior Washington team on Sunday, 25 to 3. With rumors of a simmering locker room, a roster that is looking more problematic by the minute, and possibly the worst defense in football, Have we reached the point where a famous Jerry Jones intervention might be necessary? Well, I would say, Connor, we still have some steps to go through on your what happens when a head coach is on the hot seat checklist, right? And so I would say one step that Mike McCarthy or one lever that he has not pulled is a coordinator change and at this point, Mike Nolan has to be on the hot seat with mm-hmm. the way the defense is playing. And also just the fact that the scheme doesn't really seem to fit the players that they have. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And it's weird to think that like someone like Chris Richard is out there, you know, and uh, Jerry Jones has shown uh, a desire to, you know, keep Kellen Moore in the first place. There were things that he liked about the roster that he wanted, or the team that he wanted to main- maintain. But you're right. Uh, McCarthy still has so many ways uh, to kind of Swiss Army knife his way out of this. But it would seem to be a change on defense. And, you know, this was bad. And it was bad for a lot of reasons on Sunday. But, of course, losing Andy Dalton is is one thing. But you didn't lose him until the third quarter. You were out of it before then. And this team just looks like it's just slogging through the season. There really isn't anything that you could point to and say, well, at least they're doing this well. Yeah, and for so long, the offensive line was really the engine of that team, and they're down a number of starters. They've lost a number of starters that made that unit great. So I think that is clearly a factor. You know, obviously Dak is out. Then you're putting Dalton behind a line that is down several starters. Uh, So those are certainly factors. But yeah, the lack of togetherness, uh, you referenced the simmering locker room, guys questioning efforts. Um, No one rushed to to Dalton's defense, which Mike McCarthy said he was surprised by or disappointed in after the game. There's just a lot of symptoms of a team that's just not getting together and has, has cracks in the foundation. 
you uh i know you have interviewed uh jerry jones in these uh, uh large gaggles from time to time and i'm wondering how itchy he has become now that we are in a virtual locker room situation i mean i you know i think for those of uh, you who don't cover football on a daily basis back when you know uh, back when we would do things like interview players in locker rooms you know we you would go down there and after a particularly um clamorous Cowboys loss Jerry Jones would just be perched there he'd be ready to kind of make a statement to the cameras and in a lot of ways that was his very public sort of nudging I mean how many times did we see that towards the end of the Jason Garrett era him talking about his unhappiness with the offense or you know I stand by Jason or I don't stand by Jason all these things that he would do and I think that's part of the job that he really liked but now that Dallas is sort of missing that so you're wondering what he's doing up there in that perch and is he just kind of brooding is he thinking about making a move and I'm not saying that he's going to fire Mike McCarthy, but I'm saying that he really did have high hopes for this roster, and I think McCarthy was the safest bet for him. And I think for him that meant stability, and that meant multiple trips deep into the playoffs, and this is the furthest from, uh, I think, his, his imagination. Right. The goal was to hire somebody that would get them over the hump that Jason Garrett never seemed to be able to get them over. And instead, they've regressed. And you're exactly right, Connor. I mean, just to set the scene for listeners, like it's extremely rare for an owner to be that available post game. In fact, you often have to chase down owners <laughs> to get a comment from them. I mean, you and I have both been there late season, you know, trying to chase down John Mara or Woody Johnson. I mean, I, I went up to an owner before a game at one point um, there was something that had come up with the competition committee uh, or excuse me the compensation committee which he sits on and he waved me off and told me to go sit down and continue eating my breakfast at the uh, media <laughs> lunch area so I mean it's not a regular occurrence but Jerry Jones has made it regular in the Cowboys locker room and in fact he often stands he'll either do the interview like before reporters go into the locker room or one time which I was standing in the background of which you can look my face up on the internet <laughs> when he was talking about Greg Hardy was literally standing inside the visitors locker room at MetLife Stadium so you had you have to pass him to go in and Jerry can say something newsworthy at any point in time so you have to stop and interview the owner rather than going inside to get to the players. So it's just this the, it, clear example of, you know, taking the spotlight and the shine off of the players in the locker room. But also, yes, it's his mechanism of issuing public messages. He has other ways to do that, of course. You know, he has regular radio spots in Dallas. But I do wonder, like you're wondering, Connor, what he would have said after a game like that. I picture like a, a, if you're a Cowboys reporter, like you're on the post game Zoom or whatever, but it's like a, it's like a, the FaceTime apparatus, and then it's just like you have a call waiting kind of thing that pops up, and then you just click the other window, and it's like, yes, Jerry Jones here. I have something to say about what's going on right now. Um, yeah, but it's just like, you know what it is for me, and this is what I can't get past personally. It's if you're Mike McCarthy and you did what you did to get the job that you got, you could not have afford this season. Like if you had quietly bounced back under normal circumstances and it looked like the Cowboys were taking a chance on you, then I think that that's one thing. If you mount this sort of press campaign about how next gen you've become and how much more you understand about yourself and how much better you are at relating to a locker room, like, you can't let this happen. You can't let your players not respect you. You can't have these little fights where your offensive line isn't helping the quarterback up. You can't have whispers of discord and the offense can't be bad. And all of those things are happening right now, right? I mean, it's all happening simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely, Connor. And it's, it was certainly billed as this was the guy who had success in Green Bay, who took a year off to better himself and to improve. And he was going to have the Cowboys get to those thresholds, win thresholds that he'd gotten to in Green Bay. And instead, it's gone the other direction. I, I want to, you know, because I'll probably talk about this a little bit when we get to the Patriots down below. But d- does it make you think at all about the the weight, like how you weight 
his dynasty in Green Bay at all, or is this like is it just way too small of a sample size for you? Like, like with with a lot of people, they're gonna say now, well, look at the Buccaneers are you know doing well and the Patriots are doing bad. I guess it was Bra- it was Brady all along. Like, is there part of you that's like, was this a little bit more Rogers than maybe we thought, or is it way too early for you? I mean, I do think it's too early, but I also think it's fair for those thoughts to creep in and to wonder if that's the case. I mean, Rodgers is this special quarterback talent, and we've really seen the Packers take off under Matt LaFleur, whereas they really had stalled in the final years under Mike McCarthy. So I certainly think it's a fair question. We may not be able to answer it definitively right now, but I think you're certainly kind of wondering if that's true. One could even say in Green Bay, the ceiling is Lafleur. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Wow. <laughs> Have you been saving that? That's really no, good. That one popped in, and I was like, you know what? It's uh, it's it's one of those things where you, you got to shoot it if you got it. But I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Shelby. Thank you. Excellent. Wah, wah. All right, news topic number two. The Arizona Cardinals stunned the Seattle Seahawks in overtime on Sunday in a battle of the Bird teams. Kyler Murray threw for 360 yards and three touchdowns, while Russell Wilson paired his three touchdown passes with three uncharacteristic interceptions. Was this a fluky bad game from the Seahawks, or are we witnessing a massive change atop our pecking order? Just on point as always. So that was good. Amazing. Um, so I would say that the I agree with you. I liked watching the game on Sunday, knowing what or on Monday morning, knowing what was going to happen. And the one thing that really caught my eye that was stunning to me was how prepared the Cardinals were in that two minute situation, right? Like they were coming down the stretch. Uh, Kyler Murray was robotic in the way that he would get the team into that two minute drill. The play calls were flawless, you know, when they were going down to tie the, the game at the end. I mean, every, and, and this is a pandemic off season. I mean, this is stuff where you didn't have a ton of time to work on it and they just look so ready and so dangerously prepared. Yeah, I agree. And the way that they used spiking the ball to stop the clock, which is clearly, yes, a weapon that everybody can use. But you often see, okay, this focus on, well, how many timeouts and thus they can't run. But no, they ran anyway. You saw Kyler Murray kind of taking off right up the gut against the cover two look where there's always tons of space to run, knowing they just get to the line quickly and then spike it. So I I thought that was so impressive how they used that ability to stop the clock to continue to get large gains on the ground, which is a key part of their offense. I still am high on the Seahawks. I think, you know, at the trade deadline, searching for a pass rusher could be a priority for the Seahawks because that is a glaring weakness on a team that uh, has so many things going for it. Um, I, I was a little bit surprised that the Seahawks defense was not able to make a big play down the stretch to stop the Cardinals. And thus, that made me more impressed with the Cardinals' offense. Yeah, I agree. And just a weird game, maybe from Russell Wilson, you're going to get one of those every now and then for as torrid of a start as he had been on. You knew he was going to throw maybe one or two goofy interceptions, and he certainly did last night. I mean, the one that Buda Baker um, nearly returned for a touchdown, uh, if not for the heroic efforts of DK Metcalf. Um, was was just a bad pick, and you don't see Russell Wilson do that a whole lot. And so I, I think that's one of those things where it's like, okay, you can still outscore people. His relationship with Tyler Lockett now might be one of the best, maybe behind Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams in terms of the best sort of one-two punch in the league right now. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think the Seahawks are still certainly going to be there, but it's another big sort of statement win for, for Cliff mm-hmm. Kingsbury and a coach that like, I, I don't know, I, I think if you're, if you're an NFL head coach that is creeping into year two or year three without a statement win, and we talked about that last week with the Raiders, and you look over at the Cardinals and a coach that got fired from Texas Tech is starting to rack up statement wins, like it's interesting. I mean, it's just not maybe what we expected out of this whole thing. I would say both Cliff and Kyler have exceeded expectations so far, or certainly a, a game like this 
changes perceptions a little bit. I mean, we have to see how the rest of the season goes. But some of the scheming that we saw was really brilliant last night. I mean, Christian Kirk was wide open in the corner of the end zone for one of the touchdowns. Uh, They pointed out on the broadcast how – kind of the offensive lineman going to the right made the corner on the DeAndre Hopkins touchdown hesitate and maybe think it was a run play and then kind of gave Hopkins that little extra separation that he needed. Um, There were times when the accuracy showed up a little bit with Murray. um, And I think perhaps that's one of the challenges you have when you're a quarterback who does so many things, who's constantly scurrying around the field maybe it makes sense that the accuracy issue would would show up here and there. But um, I think there were so many questions about would going all in on Kyler and Cliff together work? And what we've seen the last two weeks seems to be that coming to fruition. I think it shows, you know, if you're Steve Keim, and I think we've seen this in Tampa Bay with Jason Light um, and, you know, a couple of these uh, other situations – I mean, if you're a GM on your last leg there, just go wild. I mean, there's just no other there's no other answer at this point than to just pull every rabbit out of a hat and who cares what's going to happen. But, you know, it's interesting. I think we can still say that we don't think the Cardinals handled it the right way, and certainly they didn't. They were unprepared for everything, you know, answering questions about Kyler Murray, right. the trade, uh, you know, trade situation, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's worked out, you know, and I think that you can both say that they did that wrong, but also had a vision for the future. And it's interesting. I mean, I just don't know what team can cover them uh, coming down the stretch. I mean, they're just so good and so deep at wide receiver and they run so many four wide receiver sets. They're going to just going to pose. They're almost like the polar opposite Ravens where they just pose an extremely difficult set of personnel that you're not going to be able to cover. Yeah. And then for the defense to play the way it did against the Seahawks and for a player like Isaiah Simmons, who was barely used throughout most of the game to come up with that game clinching interception. I know Kingsbury has got, got a little bit of criticism over the accidentally icing his own kicker situation, but (laughs) you know, Okay, so you're in that situation. You, you run it again, wind some more time off the clock so that if you do miss it, the Seahawks don't have the chance to uh, go the other direction. Um, and, you know, I think they were getting so many yards on the ground that it was fair to expect that even though there had been the loss on the play before, you you might get something and, and get a little bit closer. But it just seemed like, okay, a coach maybe being a little conservative and saying, okay, we're in field goal range. I don't want to lose any more yards and back us up further. I know that this is a tough Seahawks defense, so I'm just going to take the field goal now. And then, you know, clearly the situation where the other coach comes rushing over and tells him they're about to get a delay of game and he rushes the timeout. So I don't know. That sequence to me wasn't like entirely problematic. Obviously, it didn't work out well, but it just seemed like a, okay, maybe he got a little bit conservative and then, you know, it it, it went a fluky direction. Yeah, I, I, I'm not concerned about that because like, you know, you've brought up their coaches have game plan guys. I mean, you know, and maybe this is a, a lesson that Cliff is learning, but like, you know, Bill Belichick has somebody help him with this stuff mm-hmm. too. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like he's not connected on the wire with somebody saying, Hey, you know, I'd call timeout here. You should probably do this or do that. I mean, you know, coaches employ these guys in order to help them with game planning situations and, and to be aware of all this stuff going on. And, you know, regardless of whether the Cardinals have that guy or don't have that guy, you know, I think that's, that's a breaking in process for everybody. To me, that I agree with you. It doesn't show like a, a greenness or like an unpreparedness in any way. Yeah, I did think it was interesting that when the other uh, assistant, whoever it was that rushed over to tell him to call the timeout, uh, that Cliff was talking to Kyler, which I do think is, you know, a risk when you're a coach that is so focused on the quarterback and you're having this ongoing dialogue with the quarterback. So, you know, that's your focus. And then sometimes the game situation, you know, something happens and you need someone to rush over. So yeah, there are a lot of people in that role, but you know, I think that's kind of something you have to feel out how much time you spend with the quarterback, but then not letting that take away from whatever's currently going on the field. I'm, I'm so easily distracted that like, you know, I, I could find myself just on 
on, in a long conversation, like on the radio with my quarterback, just being like, how's it going? You know, or, you know, just, you know, man, isn't this cool? You know, or uh, don't, don't you smell that pizza up there or something like that? And I, I could see myself getting into a little bit of trouble on the radio, you know, especially, <laughs> you know, he seems to like, like Kyler Murray. They seem to have known each other yeah. for a long time, you know, and I don't know, maybe I'm just long winded. I think that's, you know, I think our podcast listeners would probably agree with that. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, Connor, we'll move to topic number three. Let's do it. The Patriots were handed the second worst loss of the Bill Belichick era on Sunday against the 49ers in Jimmy Garoppolo's return to Foxborough. Everything about the game felt weird, right down to the uninspired nature with which the Patriots played. However, making grand assumptions about New England is always a sticky proposition. So how do we label what happened on Sunday? I have a trivia question for you before we get going. Oh, no. Who is the coach who handed Bill Belichick the worst loss of the Belichick era? This was number two. Number one, the year was 2003. And my clue to you is that this coach uh, in subsequent years would go on to be offered nearly every NFL head coaching vacancy. John Gruden. Greg Williams. Oh, Greg Williams. Okay. The 2003 Buffalo Bills. Who would have thought? It was a Drew Bledsoe revenge game. So it's always a revenge. It's always a former That's Belichick right, quarterback coming Bills. back and, uh, and and committing revenge. But this game was just sad in a lot of ways. Like from the opening possession, you had Jimmy Garoppolo like on a third down just running like five yards to pick up the first down and like lowering his shoulder and blowing up like a linebacker or a, or a box safety that the Patriots had in there. And like, it, it's weird watching the Patriots just get beat up, you know, and it's weird watching them be sort of hapless on offense in a way that doesn't involve an aging Tom Brady. Right. It's just like, it, it's weird. It, 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 it's, it's like a very naked look at a team that has been shrouded in such mystique over the last 20 years. But the immediate hesitancy then is to say, oh, no, this is part of a bigger plan or they figured something else out. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but this game kind of seemed like a tipping point to me where you're either still on this bandwagon or you're maybe starting to think, OK, something's going on here. Yeah, I know that Cam Newton on WEEI Monday morning was asked if there's any kind of COVID fog. And he dismissed that and said, no, everyone out there thinks they know what it is. Um, So we have to take that at face value. But I do think the fact that there was this interruption, that he faced a disease that can cause havoc on the body, right? Um, Maybe it's not a fog as the question was posed to him, but maybe just the fact of, being away from the team, not conditioning, maybe not being able to condition during that period. Um, is he still working his way back? Because the thing that's shown up is accuracy. And I don't mm-hmm. know exactly what the root cause of that is, but he was accurate early in the season and he's not accurate now. So is it something conditioning related? I mean, we talked about the fatigue aspect with Kyler Murray you know, I don't know. Does that come up? I mean, if you think about the idea that like you can, okay, you quarantine or you go through COVID and you, you return after a period of time once you test negative, but are you back to form? I mean, I feel like this is an open question and we're still trying to understand. And I think it's possible that there could be lingering effects that maybe he's not aware of or doesn't want to acknowledge or, you know, might be personal, not something he wants to disclose. But I do think that's a a fair consideration and a fair thing to wonder at this point in time. Um, And the other thing I guess would there be, you know, he's been banged up the last few years. There have been small injuries that have affected his accuracy in years past. Is there something that's a little bit off, maybe not something that he's actively getting treatment on and that would be on the injury report, but maybe something minor enough to just be bothering him a bit. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's none of those things, um, but I just know that he was playing really well and then he had the interruption to his season after being placed on the COVID list. And since then, he's not playing well. That is a great point. And I think that that is so overlooked and everyone in Boston on Sunday and Monday that was like, okay, blow it up and go to Jarrett Stidham. Relax. I I think that's totally ridiculous. I think that you're right. I I mean, 
what have we seen with Cam Newton? It's 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 like the the interception to Julian Edelman, where you know he throws the ball hard, but when he throws the ball behind a guy, it's going to get tipped and it's going to get intercepted, and that's what it is. They're balls that are a foot or two behind wide receivers, a couple inches here to the left or the right that that mm-hmm. don't normally show up there, and and that happens. That's when you're in a fog, when you have to quarantine, when you can't go and do your normal workouts or whatever it is. And I, I don't know. I I I'm not at the point now where I'm overly concerned about this team. I, I, I think that as the healthier that he gets, the better it's going to be. And I also think if you're Josh McDaniels, you always have that option of leaning heavier on what you did the first one or two weeks of the season, right? Where you can almost turn it into a, a, a sort of de facto Ravens kind of offense and really build it around Cam Newton running the football and set yourself up that way. Try to control the clock, especially when you get some of your other running backs back healthy. And, and until then, you just sort of let it take its course. But to say that the a, the AFC East has been decided at this point and that you're sure that the Patriots are going to remain in third place, I think is is ridiculous. I- Totally agree, Connor. There's f- the Patriots have one division win already, and they have five division games coming up. Uh, now, two of them are in the next two weeks, so they need to get things right in a hurry, including facing the Bills on November 1st. So, y- yeah, if they don't figure this out soon, it will be decided. But I do think it's premature to say that it's al- already been decided. And I say that acknowledging that you and I are both kind of – we're wary of proclaiming the Patriots out of it too soon. I I think they have a lot of flaws in their roster. The lack of offensive weapons showed up last year. It's showing up again this year. Cam being a little bit off. They're missing a a lot of players um, on defense. Some of their, their best defenders opted out this season. So there's a lot of reasons, but there's also a lot of time left, and I just don't want to write them off at this point. Any team that has the Jets two more times on their schedule is probably going to be okay. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I would say with, uh, with that. All right, what we got here for number four is uh, something that's just the worst, and we're going to talk about it. After the Buccaneers cruised through a victory on Sunday, they welcomed the troubled wideout Antonio Brown to their roster. Brown will presumably begin practice this week and can join Tampa Bay's roster officially after his suspension ends next week. And and this is what bothered me. Bruce Arians, after the game, said it was his idea. This after, I believe it was the Adam Schefter podcast that he did before the season called Brown a diva and said he didn't want to work with him. Uh, he said that there wasn't any room for him on the roster when he became the head coach of the Bucks, um, And he said that before training camp this season. Uh, we all know who wanted who wants Antonio Brown on this team. You know, it was the same guy who wanted him on the Patriots. Um, and Bruce Arians now is sticking his own neck out on the line and Jason Light's neck out on the line for something that... You know, yes, it's a mess that they've gotten themselves into by handing over all this theoretical power to Tom Brady, but, you know, it's still gross that he has to come out then and say that it was his idea as well, you know? Absolutely, Connor. I think there's a lot of issues with this move, and one of them is the way that this has been characterized. How will he fit in the locker room? And I hate that conversation because it diminishes the fact of Brown's horrendous off-field behavior, which yep. includes an accusation of sexual misconduct, an allegation of sexual assault, rape, uh, he pleaded no contest to felony burglary with battery charges. So the idea of fitting someone into the locker room is not the primary consideration here. Also, um, in Tampa, after the game, uh, we're not in Tampa, but after Tampa's game on Sunday, uh, Jenna Lane of ESPN asked a few questions to Bruce Arians pertaining to, you know, you've been a champion of women, Um, How do you reconcile that with making this move? And he said something along the lines of, you know, we'll see how this is decided in court and then he won't be on our team. Um, So there's a lot of evidence already of Brown's bad behavior. And this is a civil suit. So there might not be like a definitive like resolution right now it's scheduled for trial in December. It's possible the sides reach some kind of settlement ahead of time. Also, you know, I've been, I went through the, the court um, docket and Brown has been 
essentially delaying the production of discovery materials. And among the discovery materials that he's delaying producing, apparently, according to a court filing from the plaintiff, Brittany Taylor, who's the one who's uh, suing him for sexual assault, um, according to a filing from her lawyer and her side, uh, he was saying that he needed, um, it would be an extra time and extra cost for the same electronic security expert who had searched his devices as part of the NFL investigation to search those materials to satisfy the discovery request. I thought that was odd, Connor. So he's saying that information that he already produced or evidence that he already produced to the NFL, he was not producing in court. That Hmm. to me seems backwards priorities, but then it also means that the NFL has a lot of the information that the courts are waiting for in discovery. So the NFL has really switched to allowing things to be decided in the courtroom before coming down with punishment. But in this case, it seems like they would have had a lot of information already. And his eight-game suspension did not cover the sexual assault uh, allegations. It covered the other allegation of sexual misconduct and that the felony burglary with battery charges. So, wow. but it does it does seem strange to me that the NFL seems to have a lot of this information, but it's just kind of hanging back and saying, "Oh well, we'll let this see how this resolves in the courtroom." When there's indications in the court record that Brown's not being cooperative with the process, that the NFL has a lot of the information that they're waiting on discovery, um, and also that he's. He's treated a person inappropriately. He's acted inappropriately. Uh, so I just find this baffling, and I find it disheartening. Um, and uh, it's it's a really serious issue that goes beyond how he fits into the locker room or if this enhances the Buccaneers' chances to win a championship. I totally agree. Uh, I, I totally agree. And you, I thought, made a great point back in January when you wrote um, the Super Bowl game story that the Chiefs had won. And there was a part in there about, you know, and I'm not, no one player with off-field issues is analogous to another player, so don't think that I'm lumping anybody together. But, you know, the Chiefs obviously had Frank Clark and Tyreek Hill on on their team. And there was that question of, you know, at what cost, right? Do you feel like uh, signing these players, uh, you know, and what is the win versus whatever you're going to internalize, whatever message you're going to send to everybody else, and and what is that cost-benefit analysis there? Jenna Lane asking Bruce Arians that I thought was fair because Bruce Arians is a coach that's been very public about, you know, his support for women in the coaching ranks, diversity in the coaching ranks, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I think that it puts him, you know, if this is Tom Brady saying, I'm going to fix this guy, that puts him in a really difficult and precarious position if he's feeling that way. If not, if he's like a lot of other people in the NFL where it's win at all costs and people forget about this at some point or another, and as long as I have my ring, then screw him. But I don't know if that's necessarily the truth. Yeah, and obviously people get second chances all the time, and second chances should be something that's part of our society. But a second chance does not mean another job on an NFL roster. Uh, It's also something that should be earned. And based on Antonio Brown's behavior since these allegations were levied against him, you know, he he threatened the woman who, the artist uh, who alleged sexual misconduct, that was a Sports Illustrated report last September, uh, here in this... uh, civil case regarding sexual assault. He has been stonewalling the plaintiff's requests for information. Uh, And then the the felony burglar with battery charge. So there doesn't seem to me to be any indications that this is a person who has deserved a second chance for any other reason than his talent as a wide receiver. And there just have to be enough, like if, if, if Antonio Brown's bad behavior can't trump his talent, that then, you know, I, I don't understand what we're doing here. If, if that is not enough, there's just such a long ledger of things he's done to intentionally hurt other people with little attempt to reconcile or to make, uh, to show actual remorse for the things that he's done or to improve himself and work to earn a second chance. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And it's not just Tom Brady. There are plenty of other players out there and coaches and general managers who are prepared to 
turn themselves into a moral pretzel in order to make this thing happen, you know? And I think it's a, it's a sad day. It's a sad day for the league. It's a sad day for the Buccaneers. I think if, uh, you know, celebrating this guy and hoisting him up, uh, you know, over the second half of the season, if that's what they choose to do is, uh, um, you know, that's, that's pretty bottom of the barrel stuff right there, but so it goes, you know? Yes. All right. What do we have for number five? All right. Odell Beckham is done for the season after tearing his ACL on Sunday in a dramatic win over the Browns. This is disappointing, especially given that Beckham was starting to be creatively featured in an offense that was finally accentuating his talents. Does the loss significantly hamper Cleveland's playoff chances in your mind? Very much an apology there. It was Bengals, not Browns. That was my fault. Ah, oh, sorry. And I just read it like, uh, this is like Anchorman. Sorry about hey, that, Connor. Jetty made a movie reference. I made a movie reference. So it's a win for all. Oh, yeah. Feeling good about that. Yeah. All right. Well, I do want to say one thing is that when DK Metcalf made that incredible oh run from behind tackle, improbably catching a safety who was much smaller than him. I mean, that was that was just remarkable. And the kind of thing that we'll see, okay, never give up, always give maximum effort, clearly a teaching point. But on the other hand, you have Odell Beckham yeah. Jr. injuring himself and being out for the season while trying to make a tackle on an interception return. So just kind of a reminder that it doesn't always work out that way. And like, if there are players who are, nervous to make a tackle on an interception return offensive players it's understandable because of what happened to odell i would say if you're gonna do it just make sure you're the size of dk metcalf that should well, be a that's good true. That's, that's a true. good that's a good barometer like when you start chasing the guy just look at yourself and say am i six foot five 220 pounds of complete human iron then yeah then i'm fine then let's keep going um yeah, so I promise I will relate this back to the Browns and Odell Beckham, but we we missed an opportunity to just talk about this, and we were talking about Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury, but can we just talk for two seconds about DK Metcalf catching Buda Baker uh, last night? That was ridiculous. It was incredible. That was wild, and I was thinking at the time, like, what amazing tackling form for a wide receiver. Do you think that they have the receiver's practice tackling technique like once a week or once a month like his form was like impeccable to get him from behind it was um well we remember right the seahawks were sort of the those the revolutionary leader in the rugby tackling movement so maybe the offense gets to come in and uh and and do some of that stuff but i just think about like I mean, I've never been fast enough to elicit a chase, so I don't know what that <laughs> feels like. Um, but like, if you're Buddha Baker, like I was, try- I was trying to decide. Do you think he was? Do you think he was putting his hand up to celebrate, and he didn't think that there was anyone behind him, or did you think he was like about to put his hand back, like get away from me, whoever you are, and, and I'm going to try to keep going? Oh, I thought the latter. I did too. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know if, like, you know, it, it's an all-time uh, ridiculous thing if he puts his hands up and there's just a giant uh, DK Metcalf behind him. But the other way, um, I guess, makes a little more sense. But either way, Jenny, uh, before we get back to Odell Beckham, just a wonderful weekend for the next-gen stats mile-per-hour thing. That we was. Had, we started the week with Danny Dimes on Thursday going 22 miles an hour down the field uh, and then uh, unfortunately stumbling and then and then DK Metcalf going the other way and I, I love when I love when you get like a player at full stride in an NFL I don't know there's something there's like a beauty to it you know yeah no that was I always enjoy watching that because rarely do you see the straight line speed in full force and we got to see it in all of its beauty there. By the way, another a quick aside is actually, you know what? I'm going to save that for my Oracle. Okay. Uh, okay. Moving on. Uh, uh, so, so Odell Beckham, here's what's interesting. And I think that anybody who is going to uh, come out this week and you know, like, I'm trying to think, like, you know, the guy who's going to say it and it's going to be a guy, 
right? Um, is going to, you know, he'll wait for the right time, a little quiet moment, and then fired out there that the Browns offense is actually better without Odo Beckham, that Odo Beckham is too big of a distraction, and that ba ba ba, and it's going to, you know, and it's just not true. You know, he's still one of the most talented people in the league. He, you know, if anyone understands how coverages work, they know how Odo Beckham impacts a football game. Um, but I, I don't know. The Browns have an extremely soft schedule coming up. I mean, they have the Jaguars, they have the Jets, they have the Giants, uh, they have the Texans. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stink coming down the road. Um, and I wonder, like, you know, does this hamper their ability to just kind of bang out the wins that they need to bang out here? Yeah, I mean, anytime you take a player that the defense has to focus on out of the mix. Uh, I agree with you, Connor. But to your earlier point, they were just starting to figure out how to use him creatively. Um, so I we hadn't seen his full potential in this offense yet, and that's a big disappointment. Um, but I do think this is an offense that kind of is learning how to grow and develop together. And, you know, I I also wonder if Baker Mayfield kind of, we know he's motivated by the slights and now he's missing a top target. And does that motivate him even more? Uh, I'm not not sure. I, I feel like they still have a good chance to kind of stay on track. This was a, a th- thrilling come from behind win. And we saw Baker lead the team back it was something that we've been kind of waiting to see all season so i think they could be okay so i think another motivating factor for baker mayfield was raking leaves with my dad over the weekend and uh he he had said that maybe baker mayfield was taping too many commercials instead of working on on getting better so you know maybe (laughs) maybe he felt that maybe he heard a little bit of that um, noise coming from New Jersey, and and that's why we got the five touchdown performance on Sunday. I don't know. I also think when Nick Chubb returns, I saw reports that he could be back uh, after their bye week in Week Nine, and I feel like that will be a big boost for the offense as well. Look at the remaining schedule, though, right? So they have the Raiders this coming weekend, which I I I'm fascinated with because I almost put them on even footing, those two teams, right? They're very similar to me in teams mm-hmm. that could go in either direction, and they're both talented teams, and I think that'll be a, a hard-fought game. But then you have the Texans, who stink, the Eagles, who stink, the Jaguars, who stink, the Titans, who are very good, the Ravens, who are very good, but then the Giants and the Jets. Like, so... It's a very soft schedule. It's a very... like So if you beat the Raiders, this is one, two, three, four five six of your remaining games that are extraordinarily winnable which is really interesting to me mm-hmm. that is interesting it's kind of like the exercise we did last week and the browns have had some bumps since then but it still is very plausible for them to get to a 10 win threshold imagine the browns winning 10 games that is I'm- 2020 in a nutshell right there <laughs> wow you maybe you never thought you'd see the day I didn't think I'd see the day. Um, all right. So uh, what do we say we move on to uh, the uh, the Oracle? Yeah, sounds good. What do you have this week, Connor? So I remember watching uh, the game on Thursday, which we didn't have a chance to talk about. And you and I have been uh, very public in our defense of Danny Dimes. Um, and so first I'll say that I've, I have personally been there. I have... Uh, I, I had one carry ever in football. They let me carry the ball one time. And I think it was so unexpected for the defense that nobody touched me. And I was just going, you know. And <laughs> it was like Danny Dimes. Like the only thing that could have possibly stopped me was like a, a gale force wind. And so, and I remember like looking around and panicking and just thinking something's not right about this whole situation and so i just found the nearest defender and ran into him and like let him tackle me and and that was the end of it but like sometimes when you're running it you do your body just gets ahead of itself right Mm -hmm. like you know and i understand that everybody wants to make jokes about him and he's got that sort of hokey demeanor where it makes it okay but my prediction is that like he's going to end the year as a formidable quarterback presence like I if you watched a majority of that game and ignored the 
the noise about him tripping and falling, like he made some really good throws um, and his receivers drop a lot of passes. He doesn't have a lot of good wide receivers. He doesn't have a good offensive coordinator. I think that Dimes is is for real. I know that you have been saying this all along, so I don't mean to like steal it for my Oracle, but I'm just saying in the context of right now, I think he, we're going to end the season saying that this he is the guy. He can make this happen for, for, the, for years to come. No, you make a compelling case, Connor. Uh, and I agree. I mean, the focus on that one play is unfortunate. I mean, we clearly saw it with the butt fumble. But that was like a different point in Mark Sanchez's career. Like, we haven't even really gotten to see Danny Dimes have a chance yet, essentially. I mean, he he's had a coaching changes. As you said, he doesn't have a very good offensive coordinator now. It's a team that needs a lot of work. Lost its top running back. Uh He's, just, he's in a tough situation, and I think he's trying to work through it and do the best he can. I'm still in full bloom love with Danny Dimes. And if it's possible, seeing him trip only strengthened that. Um, and maybe it was just like a kinship. I don't yeah. know. Um, I tripped on, I, I went for my run today, and I, I tripped and fell. So, you know, this is these are things that happen to us, you know? I also have tripped and fallen on a run. It was before a Giants game in Atlanta. And I scraped up my hands. Yeah. We've all been there. We've all been there, Dimes. That's it. (laughs) This is your pod. You know, we're here for you. But more importantly, where's our daily dose of sanity? The Vrentis Consensus, the thing that I look forward to every single Monday and Tuesday. Consensus. All right. Before we recorded this show, I saw a report from Adam Schefter that Washington linebacker John Bostick would not be expected to be suspended for his hit on Andy Dalton. And I cannot understand this decision, Connor. He got ejected for the game. Andy Dalton began to slide. And I watched the replay, and Dalton's clearly beginning to slide before Bostic contorts his body to launch himself into Dalton's head. There seemed to be more than enough time to adjust your body position to to give yourself or to, to you know, to as he's giving himself up to kind of pull back. Uh, and he just whacked his head and it, it, it moved backwards and it was a scary sight to see. There were some reports that Dalton was feeling better on the plane ride home, but that to me doesn't mean anything. It's a scary play. There's no place for that in the game. And the fact that he wouldn't be suspended for a hit like that, we need to see the league continuing to enforce negative consequences. I mean, that's the only way to change behaviors. And certainly there have been a lot of good changes um, to rules, to tackling techniques, uh, to that negative reinforcement of there being fines and suspensions and otherwise. Um, But a hit like that is a reminder that it's still part of the game and you can't let up. So uh, I can't understand the reasoning for why he wouldn't face a suspension. Um, To me, that clearly warranted his being held out for another game uh, and the consequences that come with making a reckless play like that. That's a great point. And I think if you combine, that was the headliner awful uh, hit on Sunday, but there was also Micah Hyde uh, blowing up Rashad Perriman in the Jets game um, in a situation where it was a helmet-to-helmet sideline collision, you know, uh, trainers, like, running over and, you know, that immediate sense of danger. This would have been a great weekend to make an example out of it, to prove a point mm-hmm. and say, hey, guys, you know, the NFL, like you said, has this tendency to focus on something in the now when everybody's paying attention to it and say, see, we fix the problem and then move on and then slowly like let the let the reins back to this you know kind of elemental violent game that everybody like for some reason is totally fascinated with but you know I I think that this would have been a great weekend to say no I mean neither you guys are playing for a week Um, you know you you guys got to get better at this it's just plain and simple people are going to get hurt but they just have so much cover right now with everything going on it seems like you know we're going to limit this we're going to limit that we're going to give the referees a break and all this stuff and but you're you're slipping a little bit and I think you're sending a bad message yeah There's clearly an acute health and safety concern with COVID this season, but that should not lessen the enforcement of the long-term, long-range health concern of head trauma and behaviors that 
make head trauma serious hits like the one Dalton suffered more likely. I agree. Good point, Jenny. Well done. And the only thing I'll add to that is uh, this is not our last show before you have an opportunity to do so, but I'll say it again next week. You should vote. And if you're uh, socially distancing and not going to the polls, drop off your, your, uh, your ballot. You're running out of time. So make sure your votes are counted if you're Absolutely. sitting there looking at it. Because I'm Absolutely. looking at I had to dig mine out. I didn't realize that. Um, big ups to my dad. He looked at it and said, hey, you got to bring that to the polling place. Uh, if you're going to vote in person, which I am on November 3rd, then he said, you got you to bring that with you. You can't just throw that away. And so, you know, that was good. I had to sort of recalibrate for a minute, make sure that nobody had, uh, uh, you know, no two-year-olds in the house had suspiciously drawn over them or, or spilled milk on them or anything like that. So it was a good reminder. So I remind all of you guys, read your rules in your area, locate your drop boxes, your voting polling places, and uh, make sure you get out there and get the job done. And before we go... Just want to concede our fantasy football battle to oh, Connor Orr. No. Um, really had a rough weekend with Mahomes only garnering like 12 or 14 points in our league and you were starting Kyler Murray who had like 42. So I think I have about half of your point total heading into Monday Night Football with absolutely no chance to um, make up that ground. Um, but it... Aside from acknowledging your dominant win, um, it also is a way into some great breeder mail that we got. Um, we heard from Rob, who said that fantasy football is weird this season. Uh, <laughs> it is, Rob. He, Monday night, he was losing and had a wide receiver he picked up from the waiver wire that day. He was facing Elliott, Michael Gallup, and the starting linebacker for the Cardinals. Must be any league with defensive players. And he won by three points. No question, just thought that summarized the NFL. We heard from John, who had a similar battle, and I'm wondering if John, write in and tell us if you had a similar result, because John also had Mahomes, and his team had a talented supply of running backs, so it was very similar. I had Mahomes, Connor had a talented supply of running backs. Uh, he regretted not picking a Tier 1 RB first, and then Russell Wilson. John, I am with you. I drafted poorly this year. I also just picked Mahomes because I figured let me go with the sure thing and I should have had a better drafting strategy you would think if I do this for a living I might uh, I might know a little bit better and then Connor we actually had some other two other notes I want to highlight one is really interesting Ra uh, from uh, Australia our friend Dave from Australia has said that they have uh, in the Australian Football League they had three hubs in which the teams went into. So they did like a lockdown from the general community, but they trained and stayed in the hubs and there were no positive tests for the season. So that was really interesting. And Eric from California said, one, that he enjoys when we connect things back to the 2010 and 2011 Jets, Connor. <laughs> so so Eric, we, you know, we could not appreciate that more. But then... He wants to ask about the vegan taco truck. He and his fiance are planning their wedding for November 2021. They want an all vegetarian menu. If we get our vegan taco truck up and running, Connor, we could have our first clients. Wow. I am in. I'm very excited about this. Uh, and it's it's back to the lab now. It's about prepping a menu. I, I was texting you about vegan recipes last night, was I not? You literally were. And he sent a really good one, Connor, which I, is in the, I forwarded the message from our Weekside account. And it's a vegan all pastor recipe. So Ooh. thank you, Eric. We will work on perfecting that. And, you know, we'll keep you posted on if we, uh, if we get the taco truck up and running in time. So Just for you, Eric. And that's a reminder that anyone can write in to us at weeksidepod at gmail.com. You can also call our voicemail line at 929-445-7349. Thank you for joining for another episode of the Weekside Podcast. As always, we love having you here. The Weekside is me, Jenny Rentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Moravik is the Emeritus Executive Director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed. And while you're there, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. 